This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 149 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a bona fide Broadway legend, a grand dame of the theater for more than 40 years, who has been nominated for seven Tonys, winning two, and who could pick up a third on June 11th for her long-awaited return to a Broadway musical seven years after her last one, as cosmetics pioneer Helena Rubinstein in War Paint, the great Patti Lupone. Lupone, who is 68, is New York born and bred, and was a member of the first class of Juilliard's drama division, which was overseen at the time by John Houseman. After graduating in 1972, she continued to work with Houseman as part of his acting company, with which she made her debut on The Great White Way in 1973. She landed her first Tony nomination in 1975 for her portrayal of Rosamond in the original The Robert Bridegroom, and then won her first Tony and became a full-fledged superstar four years later while playing Eva Perón, the ambitious and doomed wife of Argentinian dictator Juan Perón, in Evita. Subsequent career highlights include originating on London's West End the role of Fantine in Les Miserables in 1985, two years before the show landed on Broadway, 1987's revival of Anything Goes, 2005's revival of Sweeney Todd, 2008's revival of Gypsy, plus 2010's original Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, all of which brought her additional Tony nominations, two Grammy wins in 2008, one for Best Classical Album and one for Best Opera Recording, and distinguished screen work as well, including parts in the film Driving Miss Daisy, which won the Best Picture Oscar for 1989, and the TV series Frasier, for which she received a Best Guest Actress in a Comedy Series Emmy nomination in 1998. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel, Lupone and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how growing up as the daughter of a school principal and being bullied at Juilliard and rarely being anyone's first choice for anything in the professional world, despite her incredible talents, has made her into the tough cookie that she is, why the role that made her a star in Evita is not one that she particularly enjoyed playing and is one that left her unable to find work for years thereafter, how personal experiences like being dumped by a boyfriend shortly before doing Les Mis have helped to enhance her performances, why she's particularly grateful for the opportunity to do and having a blast doing War Paint opposite Christine Ebersole as Rubenstein's rival Elizabeth Arden, 
and assorted other things, like why she dislikes being labeled a diva and instead prefers to be called a dame, what she finds rudest about today's Broadway audience members, why she wouldn't perform if she saw President Trump in the audience of one of her shows, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Patty LaPone, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We always begin just with the basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Northport, Long Island, which is on the North Shore. And my dad was principal of the only elementary school at the time, Ocean Avenue Elementary School. And my mom was a housewife. Your first name is spelled a little unconventionally. What is the story behind that? Well, the truth of the matter is that my dad, and we didn't find this out until quite late, when my brothers and I were adults, Mm -hmm. changed the spelling of Lupone and put the capital P in so it wouldn't look Italian, but it would look French. Okay. And we found that out after, you know, we'd been spelling our name, capital L, small u, capital P-O-N-E. And I'm assuming it's because there was prejudice against the Italians. But even the Patty part is spelled unconventionally. You are named after someone. I'm named after, well, my mom's maiden name is Patti, P-A-T-T-I. And we are descendants of, so we're told, of Adelina Patti. Who was a great opera. Yeah, famous uh, coloratura. Makes sense. Well, (laughs) you've, you've said, quote, I knew I had talent from four years old, close quote. I think every kid at that age thinks they're... The greatest, but you you were onto something. What did you see at that early age in yourself, or you know, even let's give it a few years after that? Did you recognize that you just had a great voice at that point, or what was it? No, it was the audience. I recognized the audience, and I recognized the audience recognizing me. Then I thought, well, I'm free. I can do whatever <laughs> I want. Do you know what I mean? Because they're accepting. Right. They're smiling at me. They're accepting what I'm doing. And my mom used to troop me out. I don't even know where this came from, but my mom used to troop me out when I was like three or four years old to do my Marilyn Monroe imitation. And I would lower, <laughs> like if I had a t-shirt, I'd lower it over a shoulder and I would do funny things with my mouth. Like, <laughs> you know, when she was in her, I speak English very well phase, she over enunciated every single right, word and her right. lips moved like that. And so I did this thing with my lips. <laughs> and that was my Marilyn Monroe imitation. Well, so was the fact that you like getting a reaction from other people. What in what inspire you to pursue music and theater as you grew up, or was it the reverse order? You were already doing it, and then you liked that response. I was enrolled in a dance class, and my dad started this extracurricular program after school, and my mother enrolled me in dance at four. And 
I just continued taking lessons, but I discovered at four that performing on stage was easy, fun, and that the audience reacted to me. So basically, we stayed in those classes because I did exhibit some talent. It was also a way to keep the kid occupied. Right, right. But once we we were in the class, Miss Marguerite's dance studio, we didn't leave until we moved on to the Donald Donald and Donnelly Grant dance studio. And we didn't leave that until we moved to the Andre and Bonnie dance studio. So this was just something that was part of our life on Long Island, my 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 two brothers and me. Billy showed no desire to be a dancer or in show business, Bobby, of course, is, mm-hmm. and became an extraordinary dancer attending the Juilliard School, but also being groomed for the Martha Graham Company when he was still in high school. But because it was part of our, our daily routine, it just became part of our lives. Now, was it always extracurricular, or would you do things for school? What I'm saying is you, it sounds like you went to a lot of these different dance studios and, and things outside of school, mm-hmm. but were you also involved with school plays and all that yes. stuff? Yes. I remember I wrote a play when I was in elementary school, and I was in a musical in elementary school as an understudy, and the musical was The Mikado. I mean, Northport, the Northport school <laughs> system was quite advanced in their music department. I mean, we did The Mikado in elementary school, and I learned how to read music in, in the third grade. Wow. And everybody was given an instrument, a a choice of an instrument to play because music was an integral part of our education. It's not anymore. It's a pity because it also, it was a a discipline. It was very artistic. The smartest kids in the school were in the band. Yeah. Or the orchestra, the smartest kids in the school, because of their math abilities, could play instruments very well. Now, were you at that point, let's say junior high school, high school, were you already such a standout that everybody knew that you were going to go on to do this kind of thing? Okay. Yeah. And so talk about, we were just talking a moment ago about the fact that you were part of the first drama (laughs) class at Juilliard in 1968. Correct. How did that come about? It was not something, obviously, being the first that you had much point of, I mean, how'd you even hear about it? And this was John Houseman, right? Right, exactly. Well, I knew what, I was destined for it. wasn't necessarily what I wanted. I wanted to be a rock and roller, but I knew that I had a Broadway voice. I just knew that I wasn't, because when I sang rock, it sounded like I had a Broadway voice. I sounded like Ethel Merman singing right. rock. It didn't work. That's <laughs> funny. It was true. Yeah. And I was in two rock bands, and it was like, nah, this isn't working. So I moved to New York City, and, I, and when I graduated from high school, my mother wanted me to go to college, and I thought, no, the college, the, my education is the streets of New York. Right. And, you know, auditioning for Broadway musicals. And so the first year after school, I did not go to college. I partied in New York City and auditioned for (laughs) musicals when I could. But my brother attended the dance division of Juilliard, and he told me that they were starting a drama division. And so I auditioned for my mother and my brother with with no desire to get in at all because I was just having too much fun in New York City as a... So you're doing it, you did it just to please them. I did it just to please them, and that was reflected in my audition. Not good. Because I did not 
care. <laughs> no, the audition was actually kind of funny. Yeah. And I, but I picked the most obvious classical speech and the most obvious contemporary speech. And John Houseman came to the foot of the stage. And when I did Kate's epilogue from Taming of the Shoe said, I don't think that's what Shakespeare had in mind. <laughs> and I like almost flipped him the bird because right. I just didn't care. Right. And right. then I did Dolly Levi's money speech from The Matchmaker. Then they gave me they gave me an improv, which was I had just received a rejection letter from the drama division oh of the Juilliard School. And I looked, I thought, yeah, well, okay, great, fine. <laughs> and I acted it out. They laughed and they asked me if I could play an instrument. Right. Oh, they asked me if I could sing. And I chose Carol Burnett's When You Think You've Hit the Bottom from Fade Out, Fade In, which is a, she's, her take on Shirley Temple and Bojangles. Right. And then they asked me if I played an instrument. I said tuba. And then I got a letter saying, you are the type of student we wanted, Juilliard. Oh, my god! And so I was accepted. And I thought, oh, God. <laughs> how big was that first class? And how long were you committing to be in the program for? The class was, the first year was 36, and we, it was a four-year program. It's, a, it's accredited college. You, you, you graduate with a BFA. But it's more of a conservatory because nobody at Juilliard wants to teach. Everybody wants to perform. Right. Well, in addition to working with John Houseman, I know that another one of your teachers there was the late Marion Seldes. Mm-hmm. And I want to read something to you and then ask for your reaction. This is something she said about you in 1997. I came across this preparing for this. Quote, Occasionally a student would arrive at Juilliard and change everything I had believed about acting for me. This was certainly true of Patty, who arrived so full and ready and giving and energetic. She was a marvel. People with so much talent frighten other people because they're magical and alien. Envy arises. How do you control someone like Patty? Of course you can't. So even the wisest and kindest of people at Juilliard felt compelled to denigrate and limit Patty simply so they could force her into a corner or small place over which they could exert some control. What I now realize is that Patty arrived with so great a talent that all we needed to do was to harness and husband it to clean it up so that she could share it. Anna Sokolow, who with whom I know you've dealt, she's saying to the author, once joked that if Juilliard should catch fire, we should run to save Patty first because everything else in that building could be easily replaced. Patty is a fighter for her freedom, for her talent, for her life, and she wanted a life. So many people who worked with her in her early years wanted a supplicant, a student with a face and a heart like an open cup begging to be taught. Well, Patty was begging to be allowed to let all of that energy and talent out, and then she was begging to go out and live a life and have friends and lovers and experiences. This was so unlike any other experience at Juilliard, or anywhere else for that matter, that it brought out some unfortunate behavior. I wish I could have stopped it. I hope that I always let her know that I loved her and her talent, and I watch everything she does. I refer often to her performance in the woods, so transcendent, and it is now a reference point for me when I need to reach a particular emotional level. Patty Lupone was my teacher, close quote. Oh, my God. What do you make of that? Holy shit. <laughs> wow. Well, I think what she said in the beginning about, they tried to throw me out of school by throwing all different roles at me in the expectation that I would fail. And what they did is they trained one actor in versatility, and then they pigeonholed the rest of the women and the men as well, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman, yeah. into leading lady, soubrette, ingenue, character woman. But with me, they, I was never, actually, I was, I never performed on the main stage. I was always in a classroom. 301, I think, was going to be renamed my, the Patti LuPone <laughs> Theater, because that's where I always did productions. I never made it to the main stage at Juilliard. And it was very difficult for me. And I have to disagree with, well, I'm not disagree, but I have to amend what Marion says. We had extraordinary actresses at school in the first year that didn't make it because it was either too constricting or they couldn't handle Juilliard 
and the streets of New York City. You know, they come off the farm in Minnesota and they have to deal with this. Right. And this is when Juilliard was on 122nd Street in Harlem. Right. And the accommodations, there were no dorms at the time, and the accommodations were rat-infested apartments in Harlem. And Kathy Colnane is a perfect example of someone who was an extraordinarily deep actress at 18. And... I, I was blown away by her performances. Nancy Nichols, another one who preferred to work with Jeff Weiss and Ricardo Martinez at, at La Mama. And um, John used to send me down to La Mama to bring her back up to school. And she left because she preferred to do experimental theater with Jeff Weiss. But she she's not acting anymore. But what Marion said about the other stuff and how the teachers reacted to me is absolutely true. I what struggled. I, I don't know, because I, I cried every single night while I was at school, not knowing what the problem was. John Hausman, I think, only accepted who I was and my talent when a board member said to me in front of John, I put my money on you. Wow. And that's when I think it turned around for John. But I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But it was heartbreaking. Why did you stick with it when these others caved in? Because I wasn't going to let anybody tell me that I didn't have talent or that I wasn't going to make it. I mean, Gene Lesser actually said to me, he said he could ruin my career. And I thought, I'm in school, I'm 18 years old, and this well, this asshole is, you know, is telling an 18-year-old yeah. that he's he's going to ruin my career. For what reason? He just said just because Oh, he I don't was- know. I may have talked back to him about something. <laughs> and, I, you know, and, and he said, I can ruin your career. And I thought, I thought, this is insanity. Yeah. I'm a student. Yeah, you're not even out in the real <laughs> world. Not, and I said, you're just looking for another way to get your rocks off. <laughs> That's what I said to him. Because I can't believe it came out of my mouth. That is funny. It just, And it did. It came out of my mouth. Right. <laughs> but the other thing, you know, like, we gave John a gift to Jerry Gutierrez, Kevin Klein, Sam Chuchifis, and I. Jerry wanted to direct the first act of The Apple Tree, which is the Diary of Adam and Eve. And I was Eve, Kevin was Adam, Sam was the snake, Jerry directed, and we gave it, we rehearsed it and we presented it to to John and the class. And John discovered some of his actors could sing, so they decided to do a musical. I was left off the cast list. So did John have a problem with you? I think they all did. I think that they don't anymore. Listen, you know, the the big scandal from that era of me, Juilliard, and the acting company. It's after I was nominated for a Tony for the Robert Bridegroom for my performance yeah. as Rosamond. 75. Yeah. They made me re-audition for the Broadway production, and I refused to. I went, yeah. you are negating your training of me by making me re-audition for a role I just received a Tony nomination for. Yeah. That's crazy. It's, so it was bad. It was, you know, the schooling was. But you know what? And I'm, I, it made me tougher. Yeah. You know, people think that I'm hard and tough. I'm not. I wasn't born that way. One becomes that. One acquires the skills to protect oneself. Yeah. And because of stuff I went through in my childhood, you know, my dad being principal of the elementary school <laughs> was not great for no, no. my brothers or me because we became subjects of bullying. Because of the position we were in. And so whatever happened to me in elementary, junior high, and high school toughened me up. And then I went through four years of a brutal environment under Peter, Peter Menon and John Hausman. Peter Menon was the president of the school. It's quite different now. Joe Polisi, Joseph Polisi was a great president. And now it's being taken over by Damien Wurzel. And they have dorms. Yeah. And I think that's bad. Because what? Because they're softer. 
They're cushioned. <laughs> so it actually was, in some ways, it's like a hazing process. If you can make it, you're going to be... Well, they did say, you know, yeah. everything you learn in the school, you will apply to the... And nothing will be as hard yeah. outside as it is inside of this school. So why at the end of those four years, which were obviously pretty, you know, grueling... Did you continue on with John Houseman in the when he formed the acting company in association with City Center Theater? Why continue on with this guy? Because it was the best training ground for an actor. You know, if you're serious about your, the craft of acting, you have to ply the trade. You have to go out there and and you can't you have to do it. You have to do it. And none of us thought that we would not do it. He handed us 52 weeks of work out of the year and an equity card and a seat on a bus. And the training there was the best training we could have gotten because we had been performing these classical plays for three days. And then the fourth, the performance fell apart. We didn't know maintenance. Well, what was it about? So you graduated, I guess, in 72. And then when you're out in the in the real world, you made your professional debut in School for Scandal, which was also 72. But then a year later, I'm looking, you're on Broadway, and there must be some story to this because you're li- the credits that are listed from that time, there were like five Broadway shows, all that opened between December 19th, 73 and January 2nd, 1974, that are listed beside you. The Three Sisters, The Beggar's Opera, Measure for Measure, Scapin, and Next Time I'll Sing to You. What was that about? That they that we were in repertory. So this was, okay, so that was your first Broadway, your At introduction to Broadway was in repertory. At the Billy Rose, which is now the Nederlander. I made my and debut and, and, and back at the theater. But we were in repertory. So we did those plays. I think we did. We were there for a month. So we did them a week at a time. And there's a, we may have done Scapin during the day. But yeah, we did them. Or we may have even revolved no, I don't think so. Because it looks the sets, like they were one after the other. One after the other. Yeah. Because the sets also, the other thing that was the issue with, with our first year of touring was that they built the sets for the Juilliard Theater, not the main stage downstairs, but the drama division stage. They were not built to tour. So we had, you know, our poorest, and they did the, the crew we had was a stage manager who also lit a property man and a wardrobe supervisor. That was it, <laughs> That's it. for these six monster classical yeah. plays. Well, so you mentioned... Robert Bradgroom, which you played Rosman in 1975. It's on Broadway. This was your first Tony nomination, Best Featured Actress in a Musical. This was a 15-performance limited engagement, and this was also the. So, was this your first time working? You, you mentioned that the acting company did it after you yeah. did it on Broadway. Right. So, but the Broadway version had nothing to do with them. The the Bar- Barry Bostwick was after our week performance at the Harkness. Okay, so and the Harkness, I guess, was considered a Broadway house when it was up, when it was you know a, a theater. But this was your first big part on Broadway, right? Where it was you in a major? Well, role. The, in that rep, in that, in that repertory, because that repertory included the Three Sisters and the Robert Bridegroom, and I think yeah. the Time of Your Life. We come into we come into New York as uh, with a repertory, right? So we would play a month and we would do five or six, four or five plays. Right. So The Rubber Bridegroom was one of those plays. I mean, I was, that was the year I was the leading lady, I think, of three of them. Right. Uh, It was, I I don't know whether we brought the School for Scandal in, but it was The Rubber Bridegroom, it was The Three Sisters, and it was The Time of Your Life. And I had leads in all of them, and I can't remember. Oh, the fourth one was Edward II. So they just happened to, the one that they liked the most was The Robert Bridegroom. Well, I was pretty good. I was pretty damn good in that one. (laughs) When you think back on that, what was the standout part of that, Rosalind? Oh, my God. 
Well, the whole production. It was uh, directed by Jerry Friedman, and the choreography choreography was by Donald Sadler, and it's written by Bob Waldman and Alfred Urey, and it is a slapstick romantic musical comedy. And it's so funny. I just saw it off Broadway last year, Not and I, very I'm surprised good. they didn't bring it back, because it is. It's hilarious. But that one, that production... Your one was the... And that was the first time it had been yeah. done on Which Broadway. is surprising, yeah. because it's yeah. such a good musical. You know, you have trained actors in musicals now. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? You have trained actors who know how to create a character in a musical. Right. And it, the, the, the voices were not necessarily required, even though Kevin sang and I sang. Mary Lou is not a singer, but she was hysterical as Salome, or Salome, rather, yeah. singing, you know... Prickle pear. Right, right. David Schramm can't sing. But the guys that played Little Harp and Goat can't right. sing. But they were hysterical right. in the parts. And it was beautiful, sweet, hysterical, slapstick. It, it, it had every element that you wanted to see in a musical or in a play. And yet, so that was 75. Yet the, the one that really, it seems like, I'm not sure how much of an impact it had on opportunities immediately after, but the one that that was the turning point would have been Avita four years yes. later, right? Yeah. So that was first on first in London in, in 78 with Elaine Page. How did it first cross your radar and how did you land this part that everybody now wanted because it had been so I big? I know, yeah, I didn't want it at all. No. <laughs> no, no. After we left the acting company, John had commissioned David Mamet to write a play for the company. So they put him on a bus from Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, to Columbus, Ohio. In Lexington, Kentucky, 11 of the 21 actors quit. Jesus. And Kevin and I were going to leave anyway, but then other, the artistic director at the time told the actors that they may not be playing leading parts even though they'd been with the company for four years and one actor quit and another actor quit in solidarity. And so 11 actors quit. Yeah. So, but, so David rode on the bus with us after we had been liberated after this four years of the, of the acting company. And, he sat right behind me and he, you know, I was, as we did in the bus, we had, we had, we had a ball in the bus. <laughs> he picked up David, I mean, he picked up Sam Chujavis, Kevin Klein and I, and asked us if we would do his predecessor to the woods called All Men Are Whores at Yale Cabaret. And we said, yeah. And then I started to work with David after that. Right. I went to Chicago into the woods and I did uh, the water engine. Then I did. The Baker's Wife, then I did Working. And then I think I did Israel Horovitz's stage direction. So I went back into, you know, plays right. pretty much, plays, right. two musicals. Then Kevin and Paul Gemignani, who had been Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim's musical director, both told me that I needed to audition for Evita. So I listened to the concept album, and I really didn't like it. It was Julie Covington, David Essex, Colm Wilkinson, and I didn't like the music at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, but I knew that I had to audition for Hal Prince. Joanna Merlin had seen me at Juilliard and with the acting company and knew I could act. They didn't know whether I could sing. So they brought me in for a preliminary audition. And on my way out the door, Joanna said to me, be available for the final callback. And I went, okay, that's, you know, and I went about my life until mm -hmm. the final callback. And I got the part. I mean, I was surprised I got the part as well. But I also knew that this was something that I had to do regardless of what I felt about the music because I it was the next step in my career in musical theater to work with Hal Prince. And, okay, so this is the the music. I understand that you've said that the score was one of the most difficult to <laughs> the do, most, right? Yeah. The, uh, the most. And, but the, and the cast recording, though, with 
Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, and everything sold a million copies from what I read, but it just didn't, you, you didn't warm to it. I warmed to Hal's production, which right. was not the concept album, which right. was too rock and roll. Okay. You know, it didn't, the music, I mean, I think it's Andrew's best score. The music is modern opera. Mm-hmm. And then when they put the rock beat behind it, to me, it was dissonance. It, was, right. it, didn't, it didn't gel. Yeah. When Hal put this production together, all of it made sense to me. So you were in the you were with the show for something like nineteen months. Yes. You win Best Actress in a Musical. Your first Tony at thirty one. Talk about the impact that the show's success had on your life and career because I know that it wasn't all positive no. wh- either while it was happening or even in the years after. No, I mean there was a uh, a backlash. There was a couple of reasons for the backlash. There was the British invasion on American soil of an American invention. Musical theater. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, it's not really an American invention because music hall musicals were in London first. But but the form of the musical, you know, the the traditional f- form is American. Right. There was that. There was also a lot of resentment that in the community, a Nazi sympathizer was being glorified, and I can't tell you the experience. I mean, the experience was extraordinary, and I probably will never have an experience like this before, again. Because we would have pro-peronistas in the dressing room and anti-peronistas in the dressing room, and they would say, you have her to a T. They didn't see me. <laughs> right. They saw Evita Peron again. And that's what some They saw, and people, the Argentinians to. that came up to see this were, Mandy became friends. Remember Newsweek had a My Turn section in the beginning of the magazine? The son of an editor of a Buenos Aires paper loved Evita Peron because he learned how to write, writing, Evita loves me, Evita loves me. His <laughs> father was under house arrest right. because of what he printed in the newspaper. So that's within a family. Jeez. And they came backstage. Both of them came backstage. I had death threats. I, I Did I get death threats? I think I did get death threats. We had bomb scares. <laughs> My favorite bomb scare ever. And the theater has lots of bomb scares. Actually, the guy must be dead now. If you had a bomb scare on an opening night, it was good luck. If you saw <laughs> the cops and the German shepherds sweeping the or- you know, the, the orchestra and the balcony, right. it was a good sign. <laughs> and the guy must be dead because we don't have any more bomb threats. Right. But the bomb threat that we <laughs> had in Evita was I was doing Buenos Aires and I noticed the, the spotlights flickered and then went out. And then the lights started doing something weird. And the song finished. I came off stage and I saw a very nervous house manager and the fire department and the police department. I said, what's going on? And Hal said, there's been a bomb scare. We just can't decide when to stop the show. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> it was now it was the art of the possible. And it was like they're in the rocking chairs. I got, well, you could blow up the rocking chairs or you could wait, right. you know, until the charity concert. It's up to you. And they, they called the general manager who said, do not stop the show because it'll be such bad press. Oh, my God. And they didn't stop it. And of course, well, no bomb. Yeah, right. no, no bomb went off. <laughs> so the, the show, though, after your after your 19 months, you've said that you couldn't find work for no, a few years. No. And in fact, by 1985, just a few years after, you had relocated to London. Now, was that because you said Broadway was going undergoing some major changes? There were It was not necessarily the kind of musicals that you were cut no, out No, I to. wasn't offered anything. I was not. The only thing I was offered after Evita, after that controversial success, yeah. that controversial show that made me a star, yeah. a controversial star. Yeah. 
I was offered Lady Macbeth at Lincoln Center and by, you know, directed by Sarah Caldwell. And I went, haven't I just been playing her for two years? <laughs> um, and I said, no. I went back to work in, this is the thing that really rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. I went back to my roots. Livio Chule, a great Romanian director, but I mean in the pantheon of great directors, mm-hmm. asked me to play Rosalind in As You Like It, in his internationally famous production of As You Like It at the Guthrie. And I was dying to work for him. And so I said yes to that. We revived the woods at second stage. Mm-hmm. I was Robert Altman actually called me and asked me if I would be in Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, wow. Jimmy Dean on Broadway. And I said, no, I'll never know whether I made the right decision because I had already committed to leave you. And I believe in commitments and loyalty. Yeah. So I did, I did, I went back to doing plays and then I auditioned for Oliver and was cast. Cameron saw me in my Nancy costume and said I would be perfect for the next musical he was producing. I said, when and where? He said, London nine months from now. And I went, well, that's that. And that was what brought you out there. Then he came to my apartment and said, did I want to go? This was like m- many, many months later. Played me four bars of Le- the Paris Les Mis, the concert version, and asked me. And I knew it was a hit after two. I heard the wow. first, I said, I, I, my instinct went, boom. And he said, do you want to come to London? And I said, yes. And yeah. I should have said, call my agent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's just contextualize for people. This is two years before it arrived on Broadway. This was the Royal Shakespeare Company's production there. And you win in Olivier for Fontaine. You've joked that something that had happened in your personal life around that time actually helped you to yeah. play the part. Yeah. What was that? I had a boyfriend in New York, and he broke up with me over there. And I was living in this unbelievable detached house in Hampstead Heath, right across from the Heath, right across the road from the Heath, with a front and back garden. And Michael Ball, who played Marius, was homeless, and so he came and was living with me. It was three bedrooms. And he heard me scream one morning. And the guy finally called me back and told me told me that he was seeing somebody else and he wasn't interested in me. And that was it. And, you know, you're alone in a foreign country. I mean, I'm really alone in a foreign country. And so we took a square bottle. And in my pajamas and in his pajamas, we just strolled to Heath while I threw back, I don't know, something in a square <laughs> bottle. And went on that night and realized that, (laughs) good for you, Will, because it informed the rest of my performance. Right. Well, two years after that is Anything Goes, another Tony nomination. But between that, which is 87, and Sweeney Todd, which is 05, I mean, there was 15 years. Without a musical. Without a musical. What was that about? I'm not everybody's first choice, number one. You know, and then when they get me, they can't do without me. But I'm not everybody's first choice. And I'm not offered original material. And I went off to California and did a television show for four years after Anything Goes. I made Driving Miss Daisy. I'm trying to think what else. And there were years of unemployment. There were years of unemployment. I think a lot of people listening to this are going to find that just unfathomable because post Vita, I think they must have they must assume that it was just smooth sailing. But it's different with Broadway, right? Well, no, it's not different with Broadway. It's different with me because there have been many actresses and actors that have gone on to greater glory after Broadway productions. And it is this is the flow, the trajectory of my career. It's a hard career. It's a very hard career. Was there ever a point you were ready to walk away from it and do something else? Never? Nope. 
I said, okay, this uh, this is the the these were the cards I was dealt. I got a deal. After Sweeney Todd, which I mentioned, which and again another Tony nom, Gypsy, which is a 2008 revival. That's your second Tony, I believe. Mm-hmm. This is also the second part that had previously been played by Ethel Merman, who it does sound like was a big influence for you. What would you? Was she one of the people that you looked up to? Well, she has that trumpet of a voice. She has that extraordinary instrument. When I was growing up, you know, my mom used to buy these before there were tabloids. At the checkout counter, there were, <laughs> in East Northport, A&P checkout, they had albums. And there was a, a thing called Ed Sullivan Presents. And they'd either get some members of the original company or they would get replacements. Yeah. And you would, for a dollar, you would buy an album, a Broadway show album. And I have stacks of them at home still. <laughs> so I listened to Ethel Merman. I listened right. to Mary Martin. I listened to Patrice Munsell. I listened to Dolores Gray. I listened to Rosalind Russell. Yeah. And I would, I had the inside chores and my brother had the, my brothers had the outside chores. So I would, the only turntable was in my brother's bedroom. So I would put the reg- record on. I'd act out the men's roles. <laughs> so I would have to say that my idols. Yeah. I have two, Betty Davis and Edith Piaf. Yeah. And I was influenced by all of the female singers that I listened to as a kid. Not that I would imitate them, but that I just, the roles they were playing were extraordinary. But my desire was rock. Right. Right. It was rock and roll. That's what you would have done in a if, in a If I had a rock rate. voice, but I'd probably be dead <laughs> from <laughs> drug the, intake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Continuing along, obviously skipping over a lot of things, but just to keep it moving, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown was 2010. Then you didn't do, again, there was this seven-year gap until Warpaint where we didn't see another musical. And I want to ask you, because you've spoken about this in other interviews that I read, even in the theater, which is known to be, I think, better about this than film or, or TV, it doesn't get easier as time goes by for men or women, does it? I think it's easier in theater than it is in television and film. Absolutely. But remember, I, yeah, a lot of time went by. I did a lot of concertizing. I went to Ireland and did Penny Dreadful for two seasons. But I think, again, seven years went by. I was offered maybe a couple of roles that were not worthy. It's just, it's like, excuse me? Right. Is that what you think of me? (laughs) Save it. But again, I think it is what is the nature of my career. I am not anybody's first choice. Do you know what I mean? Right off the bat, if you're thinking of, they they do not think of me. Scott. bizarre. Well, you know, that's what it, believe me, I think so too. But that's that's what it is. That's what it is. Except for Scott Frankel. Do you know what I mean? I mean, Scott thought of me. Cameron thought of me. I mean, there are instances where they, I mean, uh, John Doyle thought of me when I did Noises Off. You know, they came to me for that. Well, before Warpaint, though, what did you know about Helena Rubinstein before this? For me, it was, I I think they had on PBS News Hours, presented by Helena Rubinstein. That was it. I had no idea. What about you? I knew she was makeup, but I didn't know very much about her because my mother, if I recall, my mother had Avon products. Avon calling because we lived in the you know in the country when Northport was the country when I was growing up, and so Avon came to the door. So did like the Fuller Brush Man and the <laughs> these guys selling right. vacuum cleaners. They came to your door. Right. Yeah. You don't see too many musicals these days or for years in which the two leads are both women. women. I think somebody was saying The Rink might be the most recent. Well, the Grey Gardens too. Grey Gardens. Why do you think that is? And and in the case of the two women in this show, what, what tell us about working with. Christine, uh, Christine, I am in heaven working with her. 
let's answer your first question. Sure. I don't know why there aren't more things for women, period. Yeah. More movies, more CEOs of companies, more theater. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I don't know why we don't raise up. Rise up. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why we don't. This is extraordinary. This is, these, these guys are phenomenal. Doug Wright, Scott Frankel, Michael Corey that created this piece, Michael Greif, who directed yeah. it, Chris Catelli, who did the choreography, the most extraordinary collaborative creative staff I have ever worked with in my career in a musical. They have elevated me because they 100% trusted me. You know, there's that, that I think it was attributed to Hal Princeton. I don't know if it's true that 90% of the success is casting, yeah. but I have found that once I'm cast, I'm not necessarily trusted. And so... And I don't know if it's the fear of the director, the fear of the producer. Right. These guys gave me carte blanche because they trusted me. And what happened was I was able to contribute in, uh, intelligently and not feel downtrodden or not feel is that anything was not worthy to speak of. When Christine came on the horizon in Chicago, when we started rehearsal, you know, before we went to Chicago, there was just respect which has evolved into deep, great admiration and relief because it is two women and it's an adversary relationship. And I said initially to the producers, you can't have two actresses up there that don't like each other or that are competing. You have to walk into that stage door and there has to be nothing but love abounding. Because people are hungry for, it seems like, you know, there, there are always already comparisons with feud, the TV yeah. thing and all this stuff now. But and so there's there's the assumption. Does this carry over in in real life? No. You're saying not at all. Not at all. Not at, we are similar enough in our lives that we can be friends because yeah. we understand our careers at this yeah. point, and we are enough different on stage that we complement each other. One additional thing about war paint. 15 costume changes. I think that's one more than even Evita I read. The makeup, it's incredible how much. I went and Googled the real Helena Rubinstein afterwards. And She's gorgeous. You, but, I mean, you, you you guys look, people should Google it. It's incredible the way that you're made to to look just like her. And do you Well, have, I have a little Ashkenazi Jew in me. <laughs> I did uh, the 23 in me, and I'm 87% Southern European and 12% Eastern Europe and North African. Right. Yes. There you go. You guys. But uh, <laughs> do you have a favorite moment? I think. If I'd been a man, a lot of people No, it's love great, that. yeah. No, I don't have I don't have a favorite anything because I think it's limiting yeah. if you favor one thing over another. Fair enough. Okay. The big picture stuff. What does the word diva mean to you? And what do you think how do you feel when it's used in connection with you? I, I think diva should be reserved for the great opera singers of the day because they do extraordinary things with a natural instrument. I do not think it belongs any place else. And I don't like it when people call me a diva because I'd rather they call me a dame. Okay. <laughs> During a 2008 performance of Gypsy, you stopped the show and chastised an audience member who was taking photos. And during a 2015 performance of Show for Days, you very famously grabbed a cell phone that somebody was texting on. <laughs> what pisses you off the most these days about Broadway audiences? That, exactly. Those that. Things? Well, no, the audiences, I, well, you know what else is going on now? They're using the theater as a trash can. Every time I leave the theater and I walk through the house, I can't believe how much junk is on the floor. You know what? Take out what you bring in. Yeah. You wouldn't do this in your house. You right. wouldn't sit in front of a TV show and throw something on the floor. So take it out. It's gross. What bothers me is that the audience does not respect each other. If they respected each other, then they would not use their cell phones. They would not distract the audience, other audience members, with their business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is distracting to actors on stage, but what it does is it disrupts the 
event. Right. And then we have to pull it back. And I have to say, either we have a very sophisticated and polite audience, even though they are dropping junk on the floor. <laughs> we have not had, but we've been open, I think, 12 weeks. We've only had three cell phones go off. And... They've been turned off immediately. Well, they know who they're dealing with. They don't mess around with you. That's part <laughs> of it. And in but. one case, we heard the cell phone and we heard the audience come, <laughs> turn it off before she cuts oh your head off. Oh, my God. Uh, I've heard that you like to peek out from behind the curtain and watch people as they take their seats. What would your reaction be if you saw Donald and Melania Trump taking a seat? In I would theater? not perform, you and they know that. I cannot stand him. <laughs> Melania, I got a little bit more respect for. Right, and Melania, right. if you can hear me, divorce his ass. <laughs> Okay, just last two. Doesn't eight times a week of anything, even if it's great, start to feel a little monotonous? No, because it's a different audience every night. So it's a di- it's not the same experience. It's in not any way. the same experience at all, and it's a, it's different every single week, every single day. And finally, fi- coming up as we, as we were reminded on the way into this room, you're coming up on your fiftieth year out of uh, from the first <laughs> class of of Juilliard. A lot's happened. A lot yeah. of amazing stuff. What have you not yet done that you would like to have the opportunity to do? A situation comedy. I want to end my career on a, situ- a hit situation comedy. On TV. On TV. Such as, like, what's in a model of, so that people, if they're thinking of a show similar to something else, what would be the example? Oh, I don't want to model it on anything. I want yeah. it to be fresh and new. And you know who's you know who I'm who I'm crazy about and who I think has done a phenomenal job is Rachel Bloom on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yes, yes, yes. That show is incredible and she is the only one that in my opinion yeah. my simple opinion that knows how to do musical comedy on television on film she knows exactly how to move from from dialogue to song and she knows how to shoot it so that we're getting the entire picture it is exuberant and hysterical that show and the musical numbers are brilliant Hollywood, you have your marching orders, and uh, (laughs) good luck at the Tonys. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Thank you.